This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. Since founding the Oklahoma City-based nonprofit organization Feed the Children in 1979, Larry and Francis Jones have served the least, the last, and the lost in the United States and around the world. Larry and Francis built their Christian Relief Organization into one of the largest and most recognized charities in the nation. After separating from Feed the Children in 2009, Larry and Francis continued their efforts under Larry Jones Ministries to feed, assist, house, and educate, and offer help of various kinds to children, families, widows, orphans, captives, and the oppressed around the world. Here is Frances Jones to share her story with us. I grew up in Mountain Home, Arkansas, a sleepy little town of 2,419 people when I left to go to college. That was our population. My father's family was from that area, and his father was a doctor, Dr. Chrisley Hackler, and he was a circuit rider. He would go out and not only speak, but he would go and take care of his patients while he was there. Uh, because in those days, doctors didn't have offices. There weren't hospitals. Um, there was really no way for people to get into where he lived. And so he rode a horse, and he'd go out. And um, when he was 13, his father went to across the river to see a woman who was having a baby. And he delivered the baby. He started back home, the river had come up, and he caught cold, and he went home, and within a few days he was dead. So at my father, at 13, sort of took over the family. He felt it was his responsibility. He had an older brother, but he still felt he was the one that was supposed to take care of the family. He had four brothers and a sister, but he took the responsibility and the love and care of his family, trying to take care of his mother. With that many kids, she needed somebody to take care of her because they didn't have any savings account. They didn't have health insurance. They didn't have free meals at school. He used to deliver groceries, I've heard him tell this story, in a little cart. He'd walk and pull a cart beside him, and he'd deliver groceries to the people there in the community. Uh, he had dropped out of school at the eighth grade. My mother's family was different. I just know that she finished high school. We had a little, little tiny college in Mountain Home at the time. And she went there one year, and she met my father. I've heard him tell the story before. He was just a little older than she was, four or five years, not much. But her family did not want her to marry an older man. So they started their little family, and um, their first child was born and only lived six weeks. The, she was what it was called in those days a blue baby, which meant that there was something wrong with her heart, basically. But there wasn't really anything, uh, no sophisticated hospitals, no heart transplants, none of that kind of stuff existed in those days. Didn't even know there was a possibility. So she was, my mother was heartbroken because they had waited a few years to start the family. My mother, uh, when she, it was about six weeks since she lost her daughter. And um, the doctor in the small town that was her doctor really liked my mother. And he knew she was going through a hard time having just lost the baby. 
So he came to her one day and he said, um, I'm going to ask you the hardest thing I've ever asked anybody. And she said, she didn't know how to respond, you know. She said, well, come in and sit down and let's talk. He said, you know the neighbors down the street? Yes, she knew those neighbors. They've just had a baby. Yes, she knew that. And he said, they're having a really hard time because she can't take the breast milk from the mother. It's not agreeing with her. And she's literally starving to death. And he said, Effie, if it's at all possible, and if it's not I, I totally understand with your grief and all, I totally understand. But if you could find it in your heart to nurse this baby, we might be able to save a life. And he said, I think, uh, I want you to think about it overnight, pray about it. And he said, I'll come back tomorrow. And if you say no, I totally understand, totally understand. But he said, I do believe that I, we can save that baby. So you know what the story is. Of course, she said yes, with tears running down her face. She said she was up all night. She uh, was crying. She was praising the Lord. She was asking for healing for herself and her grief. And she said she kept going back and forth. And she said, I'm just going to tell you this, Dr. Gray. I'm going to try. I don't know if I can do it or not, but I've got to try if we can save this life because I wish there had been somebody around that could have done something, and it wasn't possible, but could have done something to save my daughter. So she started nursing that baby, and she, the baby stayed with her. And she took care of that baby and nursed the baby for uh, several weeks, and the baby started putting on weight and gaining weight and everything. And mom said, you know, something wonderful happened as I nursed that baby. And I would think about my baby and just try to love that baby, you know, and pray for that baby. And um, she said, that, that was my story. You know, I felt like that's what I was supposed to do. So in the interesting story, we'll jump ahead just a minute. But when that girl got married, was getting ready to get married, and she said, Ms. Hackler, I know what you did for me. I know you raised me and that you nursed me when you had just lost your baby. And she said, I want to thank you for that. And she said, I never expected, you know, that you'd even know that. And she said, yes, my mother told me about it after I was grown. And I didn't even make that connection for a long, long time because I didn't know my mother had done this until I was grown. And my aunt told me about it. And I knew the girl. I mean, their family was a local family, and I knew the family. I said, you never told me. I, and she said, I didn't ever feel I had to tell anybody else about it. It was just something I did. And there wasn't any reason for somebody to know that I had done that. And you've been listening to the story of Francis Jones. And if you've ever gotten the chance to be in that part of the country, Mountain Home, Arkansas, well, it's the Southern Ozark region, and it's not far from the Missouri border. Beautiful country. And from her humble beginnings, you'll hear what happens next. Francis Jones's story here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories and the story of Francis Jones. Let's pick up where we last left off. I can remember dad coming home. I was always out in the yard playing on the swing set or something, dolls, maybe tea party, whatever. I would watch for his car. I'd run, stop what I was doing. I'd run to him every night when he'd come home. And he always had on a shirt with pockets. Uh, he always had pencils put in what I call upside down with the lead at the top. And he'd pick me up, put me over his head, and bring me down, you know. And boy, those, I'm telling you what, those pencils scratched. And sometimes they broke the skin. And I've often said that was my first experience knowing that sometimes love hurts. And even though it hurt, I wanted, to, I wanted him to throw me up and bring me back down and kiss me. When he died, the day he died, I remembered that. It was a comfort to me, actually, because I was hurting that day, the day he died. He died from lung cancer. Um, I had asked God when I, we knew the doctor said he's, he won't be alive much longer. We went to grab a bite to eat. When we came back, he was sort of in a coma, we thought. And they said, are we ready to, you know, to move forward? He's dying. And I said, no, don't, I don't want him to die while we're gone to eat. You know, I, I just asked God, please keep him alive till we get back. We didn't know if it was going to take all night or how long it was going to be. We walked back in, and I said, I want, can I have a minute alone with Dad? And my family said, yes, of course. And I just went over to his bedside and said, um, Daddy, you know, we're going to be okay. We don't want to lose you. I want you to stay, but we're going to be okay. Larry's going to take care of us. We're going to be okay, and our Heavenly Father's going to take care of us. And, you know, he came out and talked to me, and I just had said, God, if he can just speak a word to me. I would so appreciate that. And he said, honey, sweetheart, I've been with Jesus. And it is so good. Uh, powerful message from beyond. If I ever had had a doubt about what was awaiting us when we die, I knew from what he said. He just gave us a glimpse of glory. So uh, we built a house. Mom moved in with us. It was a little mother-in-law plan. And she eventually got into kidney failure and, and was ready to die and uh, did pass from us. And it, it grieved our family so much to lose her because she'd lived there with us. We'd take care of her. Her health was pretty bad. And the kids loved her, Larry Sue and, and Alan would go over, they could visit her anytime they wanted to. She kept the door unlocked so they could come in, come and go. But we got through that. Um, I said that day I was talking to the family and I said, you know, we're all going to face a day like this at some point when Jesus is going to call your name. When, um, before I met my husband, uh, I came to OCU at Oklahoma City University, majored in music. Uh, we were friends. Um, my sister had had a class with uh, Larry in college, and they got to be friends. And she was a music major also. So uh, he played basketball. It was kind of strange worlds, but they got to know each other and became friends. And when she was coming home one night, one Sunday night, from being out with, on a date, there was a car wreck. 
and she was killed in that wreck. And of course, Larry found out about it. And he went to the hospital that night just to see, you know, if there was anything he could do. I didn't see him that night. But um, then he came by the dorm one day and said, would you like to go to a movie? I said, yeah, that'd be, that'd be really nice. So we went to see Porgy and Bess, the movie. And knowing Larry, he was not particularly a music lover. <laughs> and he probably wouldn't have chosen that one to see, but he knew I was into music. So he made the sacrifice. We went to the movie. And it was nothing more than just, you know, thank you so much. It's just good, you know, to get to, he was studying for the ministry. And I said, it's really good to just have a friend that doesn't want anything but just, you know, to pray together, to uh, take me to a movie that's really thoughtful and really sweet. And that was the end of that. But uh, little did I know, the next year, uh, I was voted homecoming queen. And uh, I had dated his roommate. And the coach said, okay, call the guy Harry. He said, you go up there. And he said, oh, coach, I can't do that. I can't do that because he had, we had dated a few times. He said, I, I can't do that. He said, boy, my, my fiance will not like that. And so he said, okay, Jones, you get up there. So out comes, I didn't know there was this conversation going on. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so he said, Jones, get up there. And he said, well, who is it? And she said, Francis Hackler. And so uh, he came up, and I thought, well, there's a friendly face. You know, it's at least somebody I know. And they brought me the flowers and all that, and the kiss on the cheek, and congratulations and all that. And uh, so then it was halftime, of course, at the ball game. And when I got back over to the, to the seat where I was sitting, one of the people came up and said, there's going to be an alumni. But since it's homecoming, the alumni will be here, and there's going to be a dinner, and we'd like for you to come. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And they said, why don't you bring a guest? So I said, okay, I'll do that. So I waited around after the ball game was over. Out comes Larry, and I said, uh, I've got a favor to ask of you. I said, they want me to come to, for some reason to this uh, alumni banquet that we're going to have. And I said, I'd, I'd like for you to go with me. They want me to bring somebody, you know. And I said, they'll all know who you are, so you go with me. And he said, yes, I'll go with you. So that was our first date. And I guess that did it when Mr. Jones gave me that kiss on the cheek. I thought, <laughs> this is not so bad. <laughs> so uh, we started dating after that. And uh, it was just a great love story. So that, that brings us up to our children that we had. We had two children, a boy and a girl. They were very active in our ministry that we had at the time. They learned to count folding uh, little pamphlet type things. They'd put those together. Then as they got a little older, they sold books at the services when it was over. Go by and see our kids and buy a book. So they learned to count and make change and money and all that. So uh, they, of course, gone forth and with their lives and, and so forth. And I'll just go ahead and, and uh, we lost our son to suicide uh, about nine years ago. And I have to say, it was just another huge loss in our family. He had some, some problems and he just couldn't forgive himself and he couldn't, he tried, um, but he, 
he just couldn't get past some things. And um, so he committed suicide. And we were at a loss, totally devastated by his loss. And uh, it certainly changed our life in many, many ways. Um, and we, of course, had a ministry in Africa. And he had been to Africa with us. Most of the children had. And we eventually started uh, an abandoned baby center there for children. We noticed every year as we would go that there were more and more babies being left on the street, being discarded in garbage dumps, being discarded in uh, public bathrooms, and just laid down on park benches and just weird places. And we thought, man, this is, this is really bad. And HIV was very prevalent at that time in Africa, and AIDS was epidemic at that point. So we knew that a lot of parents were dying and couldn't, mothers, if they had AIDS or whatever, they weren't able to take care of the children, so they'd just leave the children and, and try to go on with their lives. And we said, that's, you know, we shouldn't, we need to do something about this. We can do something to help these children. So we created the Abandoned Baby Centers. And um, it was our first trip back to dedicate the building. And we met this little boy. His name was Daniel. And he has quite a story. And our children were with us when, when we were doing this. So they knew Daniel also. He was abandoned when he was born. He was... Um, just laid on the ground in a very busy area. And when we come back, we're going to hear what happens to Daniel and Francis Jones, how meeting this boy changed both of their lives. And my goodness, this is the real story of what Americans do overseas and around the world all the time. Through mission work, secular people like Doctors Without Borders just going around the world and making a difference. The giving and generous nature of this country, well, we don't talk about it enough. And it's not just money we give, but the most important thing we give is our time. And very often, we dedicate our lives. Many Americans dedicate our lives to this kind of work, as the Joneses did. When we come back, more of Francis Jones's story here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and the story of Frances Jones in her own words. And we pick up where we last left off with Frances talking about a little abandoned boy. He was abandoned when he was born, just laid on the ground in a very busy area. And dogs, wild dogs, came and attacked him and started eating. They ate the left side of his face and his ear and a toe. And, you know, just knowing that makes me suspect, you know, they were going to devour that child. A little woman walking by heard this baby screaming, went over there and shooed the dogs away, picked up the baby, took it to the police who took it to the hospital. And they did um, a skin graft on him to keep him alive not knowing whether he had even lived through the surgery or not. 
and he stayed in the, in the hospital for the next nine months in a little bed that I could, would call like a hammock. He couldn't turn over, he couldn't move, he couldn't set up. He, he was just laying there. And of course that is a serious problem for a baby when you can't turn your head, you can't move around, you can't move your arms, you can't move your legs. And so he wasn't developing in those areas, the muscular part. And um, we, we met him there. And then when we came back to dedicate the building, Daniel was there. We walked in and there's Daniel. They had tried to find uh, his family or anybody that had seen anything or knew anything. Nobody turned up. They never could find anybody. So the Department of Children's Welfare had said, could you take him at the abandoned baby center? And of course they said yes. So we walk in and here's this little boy, big brown eyes, just sitting there. And then you look at the face and it's gone. And you think, bless his heart. You know, God's got a plan for this boy because he shouldn't have lived through that. And um, I picked him up and I have to say, I fell in love with that little boy the minute I looked at him. I just knew at that time this was, this was our baby, our boy. I looked, I, I often say, I look into that little face, part of it gone, and just saw the face of Jesus there, just as clear as day. And so I, in my own heart, started making plans to adopt him. He was just nine months old at the time. When he was four and a half years old, we brought him to the United States to have reconstructive facial surgery. And uh, our children were as excited over him coming as becoming a part of our family as we were. He's uh, brought a dimension of love and compassion, of understanding. He is, I've called him a little old soul because he knows things, it's, in, it's within him, things that he hasn't learned. So it has to be a God-given ability to see people. One of the things he does is hugs people. We call him, Daniel has the gift of hugging. He walks up to people and just hugs them and loves on them. And they, if, if they miss him at church, they feel like they've really missed something, you know, because he'll find, he seeks to find them wherever they are in the church, and he usually knows where they sit. Where they're, what, what, where they're going to be. Goes to him, gives him a hug every Sunday morning. He was lifting people up, literally, because he's become a six foot two, six foot three young man, weighs 200 pounds. I mean, he's a big, big boy. So if he wants to pick up somebody, you know, he gives them a hug and picks them up. We've had to try to, you know, calm that down a little bit because we don't want any broken back or neck or what, you know. And we're very conscious of that now that Larry and I are older, you know, because he started picking us up and we said, hey, <laughs> back up just a little bit and, and give us a chance here because we have back problems. It's like we don't want to get it any worse. So we have a little talk about that at home. He is so content with the way he looks and he's a beautiful, handsome young man. He, he just feels like he's lucky to be alive, you know, and he thanks God that he's alive and, and he thanks God that he has a family that loves him and takes care of him. He's gonna graduate from high school in just a few months and start college next fall. 
I don't know how, what Daniel will end up doing. He loves animals and wants to do some kind of work, you know, at the zoo or somewhere working with animals. But I suspect at some point, God's got his hand on that boy. At some point, he's going he's gonna to have a ministry to people. And I, you know, I hope I live to see that because he's going to bless a lot of people who are struggling with their self-image and just his testimony alone what he's been through, the pain. He's had more than 20 surgeries doing just a little bit at a time. The doctor that did the surgeries uh, did it just free. He said, I want to do this for Daniel. And he said, I know there's going to be, he said, I'll tell you now, it's going to be probably 10 years and there's going to be a lot of surgeries. And he said, I'm good for all of them. What a God-given gift that was for a surgeon to sign on to do something like that. The hospital said, we want to, we'll donate uh, the room and the hospital, everything. So he didn't have any hospital bills. That was all given to him. Um, and he knows that. And he's gotten to know the surgeon very well since he's seen him so many times. And uh, he thanks him every time, you know. He said, you fixed my broken face. Uh, interesting side note to that. The nurse that was in there while the surgery was going on, she came over and started talking. And she said, now, I understand you all adopted Daniel. I said, yes. And she said, do you know that I was in this operating room the night he was, or the early morning, he was brought in here. And we didn't know if he was going to live or not. And she said, I started praying for that boy. She said, what a story. He didn't even have a name. She said, we named him in here. We named him Daniel. Daniel and the lion's den. And she said, what a survival he's made. But he's blessed our family, I'll tell you, in a, in a mighty and in a powerful way. We've learned a lot from that little boy. Learned a lot from him. And our children have learned a lot from their little brother as well. But I never would have imagined a journey like this with Larry. And it has turned out to be a just a fantastic journey. We've been, had our ups, we've had our downs, we've had happiness, we've had sorrow and grief, but God is good. And we've had a, it's just been an interesting journey. I never knew from one day to the next what, we'd be, what we were gonna be doing. If we were gonna be going somewhere to feed children or if we were gonna be home. So we kept a bag packed. <laughs> bag packed, ready to go. And you're listening to Francis Jones. And Francis and Larry Jones started Feed the Children in 1979 and built it into one of the world's largest relief organizations, Christian relief organizations, in a very short time. And then in 2009, they both started the Larry Jones Ministries to continue their efforts and their work. But my goodness, this may have been the greatest work they ever did. And it was the simple act, a hard act, a beautiful and sacrificial act, and a loving act of just adopting a stranger and a boy who a dog had nearly devoured his face. And when he got to this hospital, the boy didn't even have a name. And so the people in that hospital named him after a character in the Bible, Daniel. And my goodness, he ended up living into that name and living into the reality of that name as a real warrior and a real, not only survivor, but somebody who thrived and gave sustenance and joy to others. Wasn't seeking pity, but oh, quite the opposite. People couldn't wait to be around him. 
And Frances put it so well when she talked about what a joy he had been as an addition to their life. And yes, there was grief and tragedy. Anyone who's had children will know that it's not all rainbows and fairy dust. Love isn't that thing. And what an original voice. Again, from a small town in a beautiful part of Arkansas to just not just building a big organization and then a second, but living the, living the life and walking the walk and loving a complete stranger. If more of us did this in the world, the world would be a better place. Francis Jones's story, in a way, Daniel's story, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and now it's time for our rule of law series where our own Alex Cortez brings us stories about how this rule of law thing silently shapes the world around us without us even knowing it. I play the violin for peace, for freedom. My name is Willie Arteaga. I come from a family very humble that prohibited me from going to school. My name is Willie Arteaga. I come from a humble family, a family that prohibited me from going to school. That's why I had to use the internet to learn everything I know. I learned to play the violin by watching YouTube. You're hearing a translator because Wooly is from Venezuela. Una nación prácticamente destruida. A nation that's almost been destroyed. Solamente el último año, millones de personas han salido a la calle en protesta. Just in the last year, millions of people have come out on the streets in protest. Here's the Foundation for Economic Education's Larry Reed. When he was around 20 years of age, he began protesting in the streets of Caracas. And that's because he saw firsthand the violence of the Maduro socialist dictatorship. Breaking right now, socialist dictator Nicolas Maduro ordering his army to open fire on Venezuelans attempting to cross the Brazilian border as they search for necessities. This regime of Nicolas Maduro has, from day one, tried to take all other branches of government and make them mere pawns of the executive branch. The Supreme Court of Venezuela today is just a rubber stamp for him. The National Assembly, he makes sure that they really don't have any real legislative power. And the result is the collapse of the rule of law, a brutal one-party tyranny that shuts down freedoms of speech and press and assembly, that controls virtually every aspect of the economy and has driven the country 
to impoverishment. This is a country that was the richest in Latin America barely a generation or two ago. And now it's one of, if not the poorest. The average Venezuelan has lost 24 pounds in the last couple of years, reflecting the fact that food is increasingly scarce. They just don't have the things that socialists are fond of promising, but rarely deliver. Socialists never bake a bigger pie. They simply quarrel amongst themselves about the best way to divvy up a shrinking pie. The money issued by the socialist government that is now near worthless is being used for toilet paper because socialist regimes always run short of toilet paper. And it's also being used to make baskets. So very non-monetary purposes. You know, in America, we would never think of that. But that's what's being done in Venezuela today because the money has become virtually worthless. The government has been printing paper boulevards like there's no tomorrow. And that's the source of the soaring prices. Inflation in Venezuela this year is likely to be measured in the millions of percent. What that does to people is just so awfully tragic. They can't save. They can't invest. They have no hope for the future because the economy is just falling apart. Venezuela is a country gripped with a nightmare. A principios de este año, un compañero mío, Armando Cañizales, fue asesinado en una de estas protestas. One of my colleagues, Armando Carrizales, was murdered in one of these protests. Pero yo me rebelé y fui a tocar por él y por millones de venezolanos. But I continued playing for him and for millions of Venezuelans. Pero en respuesta fui atacado con gases lacrimógenos, con cañones de agua. Me golpearon con mi propio violín. In response, the government has attacked me with tear gas, with water cannons. They even beat me with my own violin. There was an incident in the summer of July 2017 when the police fired rubber bullets at him and hit his face, causing some serious injuries, and also broke his violin. And there would be no violin when they put him in prison. Me quemaron el cabello con un encendedor. And that wasn't enough. They also burned my hair with a lighter. He was beaten and he thought he was going to die. Willie was becoming very well known throughout Venezuela as they saw and heard of his leading protests with his violin. So his arrest and torture in Venezuelan jails only made him even more of an object of admiration on the part of many Venezuelan people. In comparison with algunos, yo la he tenido prácticamente fácil porque muchos no salen de la cárcel sino que mueren. In comparison with some of them, I have actually had it easy because many of them have not even left the prison yet. Los asesinan. Some of them have been murdered. Willie was released from prison. He made his way as in the case with so many, to Colombia, then got a flight to New York. The flow of human traffic is a, an ongoing verdict on the success or failure of any society. And in Venezuela right now, you're seeing an exodus in one direction, 
More than 3 million people, more than 10% of the population of the country, has left in just recent years. And they're coming not to other socialist nations or communist nations, they're going to much freer places, and they always have. This is always a sign that freedom is what people want. I asked Willie recently, through a friend who speaks Spanish, what Willie thought the difference was between the two countries and what his expectations were when he came here and how well they have been met. And he was quick to say that the difference between Venezuela and the United States is the difference between hell on earth and heaven on earth. When he came here, he, of course, didn't know anything about the country other than its reputation for freedom. He knew that uh, uh, he would be allowed to come in and hopefully given political asylum. But other than that, he he thought that uh, going to New York might be risky, that the crime rate would be something to worry about. But now he has settled in and he feels as though the crime even in the Bronx is next to nothing compared to what he experienced back in Caracas. He tells the story of a singer named Marley that he came upon while passing through 34th Street around midnight. There were people around, but she was singing with such inspiration that her eyes were closed. And he was reminded when he saw that of his playing back in Venezuela during the protests. Willie says he can now play with his eyes closed in New York City without worrying about police or paramilitaries attacking him. A stark contrast between the absence of the rule of law and the presence of it. One place you can't close your eyes in the streets and another you can. He's come to know other musicians and now sometimes he plays with five or six other musicians like a concert. Something which he couldn't do in the streets of Venezuela. No other musician would bear with him the rule of lawlessness that was killing their art. And he loves how open New Yorkers are. They never hesitate, he wrote, to show him if they like his music. Perfect strangers coming up and offering him $100 uh, simply because they love his music or they know his message. They know what he's been through back in Venezuela. It's a very heartwarming story of a young man who fled repression, is now in New York playing on the streets and finding that Americans really do have a heart, that there are a lot of good people who are trying to help him out. One night in New York City, not long ago, it was about 2 a.m., and a policeman approached Willie to tell him that he couldn't play in the streets past 1 a.m. But there was a crowd that told him that he had to continue. And Willie took the side of the policeman and said, uh, he's just doing his job. But then the policeman told him how much he personally loved Willie's music. And although he didn't give him any cash because he didn't have any with him, he gave Willie his police patch instead. It was a simple act, uh, but Willie deeply appreciated it, and to this day talks about it as just a great moment of friendship from an unlikely source. And thanks for that, Alex, and thanks to Larry Reed as well with the Foundation for Economic Education. Learn more about their terrific work advancing the rule of law and liberty at fee, F-E-E dot org. That's fee dot org. 
The story of Willie Arteaga is, well, it's emblematic of so much that's going on in the world. Where people are moving from and where people are moving to is something we track because it tells you everything about a human life. Moving is not easy. It's hard to do. And when doing it the way people are doing it in mass like this tells you a story about one home and where they're moving to, well, a story about another home, a new and adopted home called the United States. Wooly Arteaga's story, America's story, here on Our American Stories. Candy Mountains, you never change your socks, and the little streams of alcohol come a-trickling down the rocks. The brakemen have to tip their hats, and the railroad bulls are blind. There's a lake of stew and a whiskey, too. You can paddle all around them in a big canoe in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. In the Big Rock Candy Mountains, the jails are made of tin. And you can walk right out again as soon as you are in. There ain't no short handle shovels, no axes, saws, or picks. I'm a going to stay where you sleep all day, where they hung the Turk that invented work in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. This is Our American Stories, and now Jesse Edwards brings us the story of a desk, unlike any story of a desk that you've ever heard before. August 24th, 1814 marks one of the darkest episodes in the War of 1812. On that day, British troops marched on Washington, burning public buildings, including the U.S. Capitol. Among the losses in the Capitol were the Senate chamber and all its contents. Reconstruction took until 1819, and when senators again took their seats in the rebuilt chamber, they occupied 48 new desks and chairs custom-made by Thomas Constantine, a New York cabinet maker. Constantine was paid $34 for each Senate desk and $46 for each chair. Today, all of Constantine's desks remain in use in the current Senate chamber, although his chairs have been replaced. As new states entered the Union, desks of similar design were ordered from other cabinet makers, although the four newest desks, those constructed for Alaska and Hawaii, were built in the Senate cabinet shop. There are noticeable differences in shape and dimension among the 100 desks. These result from the original semicircular arrangement in the old Senate chamber. A desk's shape reflected its position in the room. Aisle desks were narrow and angled, while the center was wider and square. If the oldest were arranged in the original layout, it is believed they would have formed a perfect semicircle. Many traditions pertaining to the Senate desks have evolved over the years, and each new class of senators that occupies them contributes to their heritage. Through careful documentation and diligent preservation, this rich legacy will be maintained for future generations. But there is one Senate desk unlike any of the others, and you wouldn't know by looking at it. Next to the eastern door to the Senate chamber, the first desk on the right, in the last row of desks, they call it the candy.
handy desk. It all began on the Republican side of the Senate in 1968 when Senator George Murphy of California, who had an insatiable appetite for candy, started stocking his desk full of sweets that he would often share with his fellow senators. The tradition has continued ever since and has even become a point of pride for the select few who preside over the candy desk. Senators John McCain and Rick Santorum have both sat in the coveted desk. The current and 16th tenant of the candy desk is Republican Senator from Pennsylvania, Pat Toomey. Since Hershey's chocolate is based in Pennsylvania, Senator Toomey gladly shares candy from his home state. Well, I am happy to be carrying on a great Senate tradition. It's the tradition of the Senate candy desk. For 50 years now, one desk on the Republican side of the aisle, the first desk that Senators pass as they walk into the chamber has been the official candy desk. And there's no state that should occupy this desk more than Pennsylvania because we are America's leading confectioner. We have more candy companies than any other state. We have 10,000 people working in this industry and it's just a terrific industry and I happen to really like Free Musketeer bars. So I'm delighted to play this role. Now the strange thing is According to Senate ethics rules, Senator Toomey and anyone who bears the responsibility as keeper of the candy desk is required to place only candy that originates from their home state into said candy desk. You see, every candy company in the world would love to have their candy inside the Senate candy desk. Think of it as a form of lobbying, because that's exactly what it is. Now, you might think that keeping a desk full of candy wouldn't be this complicated. But the rule states that senators are not allowed to accept donations of more than $100 per year. The loophole is that this rule does not apply if the donations are manufactured in that senator's home state. Now get this. If you wanted to add your brand of candy to the already existing pool of U.S. Senate Candy Desk Candy, your company and all the other companies that want to donate must first be represented by the National Confectioners Association. The trade organization that advances, protects, and promotes chocolate, candy, gum, and mints, and the companies that make up the $35 billion U.S. confectionery industry. The Democrats have also had a candy desk since at least 1985, a roll top located on the front wall belonging to the United States Senate Democratic Conference Secretary Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin is also filled with sweets. However, the Democrats manage their candy desk on the honor system. Not to get all political, but it's interesting to see the way each side of the aisle chooses to distribute candy differently. On the right, candy companies pay lobbyists to help get their sweet sugary product into the gaping maws of the Senate body. On the left, it's a communal dish where people can pay as they wish. On the right, they find loopholes around ethics rules in order to maximize the quantity and quality of candy that makes it into the desk. On the left, the most popular candy was the plain old Hershey's Kiss. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Hershey's Kisses are one of the most popular brands of candies in the U.S. with more than 60 million produced each day at the company's two factories. The Hershey Company ships roughly 100 pounds of chocolate and other candy four times a year to fill the candy desk. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
And great story, Jesse. I know a lot about Congress in American history. I did not know anything about the candy desk, and I feel like a really terrible boss. <laughs> and so he did a quick poll. The Our American Stories candy desk will be stocked with, well, Sour Patch Kids for Faith, Jelly Bellies for Greg, Peanut Butter M&M's for Stan, huh? Skittles for Jesse, Good and Plenty for me, well, for my wife when she comes in occasionally, some Snickers, the little baby Snickers, and for Reagan, my beautiful daughter, Kit Kats. And of course, Alex, well, he's not here. This is Our American Stories, the story of the candy desk. And we tell a lot of stories about our nation's past. And this one next, well, it's a story, well, part of a story that you know, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. We're about to tell you that story. But the more interesting story, which is the Great Chicago Recovery. Experts agree on where that fire started back in 1871, a little under two miles from downtown Chicago, just to the southwest. But how it started remains an open question. And so we bring you Tim Samuelson, the cultural historian of the city of Chicago, to tell us about this area and dive into the mythology of how the Chicago fire got started. It was an area of small shacks and cottages of largely Irish immigrants. The fire itself began in the barn of Patrick and Catherine O'Leary. For the scale of Mrs. O'Leary and her existence in the neighborhood, she was an entrepreneurial businesswoman. There was more than one cow in the barn, and she had a you know, modest but substantial business. And, of course, the thing that's amazing is that for years people told this story about her at night milking the cow, the cow kicking over a lantern, setting the barn afire, and then high winds and dry conditions go and burn down a significant part of the city. Well, if you have a dairy business, you don't milk your cows at night. In fact, usually at the time the fire started, and we're talking about, oh, maybe about a quarter to nine in the evening, you're likely asleep in your house because you have to get up early to milk those cows. And again, there's multiple cows in the barn. So it makes for kind of an interesting, ironic thing that poor Mrs. O'Leary gets fingered. But where did the fire start? You bet it started in their barn. And ironically, what didn't burn in the Great Chicago Fire The O'Leary's house, it made it through just fine. But the fire took off on a path that would go to the northeast, jumps the Chicago River, headed right for downtown Chicago, which was a fairly built-up metropolis by 1871 with substantial buildings built out of stone, 
brick and iron fronts. Many people talk about downtown Chicago being largely wood buildings. That's another myth that kind of needs to get solved. The buildings of Chicago were of size and substantial architectural character and quality comparable to other cities of that era. But when you have the conditions of dry conditions, high winds, those stone walls will crumble. A dignified front made out of cast iron would melt like butter. And it wasn't the case of one building setting fire to another. It was the case of such an intense heat that things would just spontaneously combust. Let's talk a little bit about Chicago and what caused the fire in terms of Chicago's growth. Because in 1840, Chicago was basically a a small Midwestern town. I wouldn't even call it a city. Talk about the growth, the meteoric growth from 1840 to 1870 that set the conditions under which a fire like this could have even happened. People look at Chicago as this major metropolis, in which it is. But let's go back to, let's say, the 1830s or the 1840s. What was here? Not much. In fact, if you were here in 1830, people argue about how many, but it might be 50 to 100 people. The buildings are just little shacks along this meandering little river off of Lake Michigan. But here you have a location that, yes, it may be remote. It may even be this swampy backwater. But it was the perfectly located swampy backwater because as a country is at that point starting to grow west, Chicago was the strategic location located on the chain of the Great Lakes that could connect to the waterways of the east, and everything and everyone heading west would funnel through Chicago. So Chicago is the perfect place for anyone or anything to get anywhere. So you go from a mud hole in 1830 with just a handful of people, you start to get a few thousands of people in the 1840s, modest little buildings. By 1870, you have a major metropolis of over 300,000 people. It becomes a headquarters of commerce and manufacturing. It was a place that when you had the combination of the waterways meeting the rails, you could bring raw materials in, transform them into something else with a large labor force, and ship them out conveniently anywhere in not only the country, but in the world. Let's talk about the night of the fire. How long did it rage? How much of the city did it consume? And what did the fire spare? People often talk about the Great Chicago Fire, and they'll ask me, you know, well, it destroyed the whole city, didn't it? Well, it didn't. The evening of the fire on October 8, 1871, was in the center of a really tough drought. Things were really dry. Now, Chicago had a network of fire hydrants and fire suppression systems, um, but it certainly wasn't prepared for the kind of catastrophic events that happened on that fateful night of October the 8th. So the fire does break out in the barn of the O'Leary family. 
There is some bungling on the part of how the fire was reported that delayed firefighters in getting to the fire to extinguish it. However, the conditions were such that with the wood buildings that surrounded the O'Leary barn, the high winds and the dry conditions, it probably can be said that the fire was almost unstoppable from the start. The fire races through the wood buildings of this immigrant neighborhood less than two miles southwest of downtown Chicago and then carries through in kind of a wedge. And, well, the fire didn't destroy the whole city, but it took out its whole central business district heart. The imposing stone, iron, and brick buildings of down Chicago were totally consumed. There were wood details in downtown Chicago in terms of ornamental mansard roofs, wood paving blocks, but for the most part, the buildings were fairly substantial. But the interiors are largely made out of wood. The total heat totally combusts them. So the fire starts, let's say, a quarter to eight in the evening. And you have, by one o'clock in the morning, it is burning downtown Chicago. And there is the courthouse right in the central square that is basically in flames. And then it races across the main part of the Chicago River, burns out a significant part of the north side of Chicago, burning out to almost a triangular wedge that would be on the north side, almost near what's Fullerton Avenue and Clark Street today. But all the city didn't burn. The south side of Chicago, that was a significant part of the city, was hardly touched at all. The west side of Chicago, which was also a significant part of Chicago, was hardly touched at all, except for that wedge that burned uh, from the start of the fire at the O'Leary Barn. And also, there were areas of the north side, and the farther reaches of the north side into the west that didn't burn at all. Chicago was able to recover fairly quickly after the fire because the one thing that the fire could not destroy was Chicago's perfect location that made the city thrive to begin with. And you could get anything you wanted to rebuild the city by the same waterways, the same rail lines coming into the city that could still deliver the goods for the city to thrive. And there were substantial parts of the city that were untouched by the fire, where the businesses that once had their offices in downtown Chicago could take temporary quarters. So you had businessmen who had you know, elegant offices in downtown Chicago. The ruins were still smoking, and they were making arrangements to get quarters in old boarding houses south of downtown Chicago and re-establish their business and get to work rebuilding the destroyed city. Didn't take long. Didn't take long indeed. When we come back, we'll find out how this all happened. We continue with Tim Samuelson here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here with Our American Stories and the story of the Great Chicago Fire and, more importantly, the Great Chicago Recovery. And we're talking to cultural historian and the guy who knows just about all there is to know about Chicago, cultural historian Tim Samuelson. Let's talk about the damage caused by the fire and the extraordinary recovery. We had 100,000 people who were homeless, 17,000 buildings were destroyed, and 300 people were killed. Tim, how did the people of Chicago, their spirit, play into this city's recovery? I can let you in on a little secret about Chicago that's not often talked about, and it's something that I think is a matter of pride, is that for all of its growth and prosperity, Chicago is still a tough little can-do Midwestern town in spirit. And so people who came to Chicago came here with the idea of making a buck. The people who came to Chicago in its early growth were the outsiders who didn't fit in to uh, old established societies. Maybe they were a part of a profession that was done the same way for years and years and years. They had a different way of doing things, but they never had a chance to do it because the old society was there to say, oh, you can't do things like that. So Chicago quickly became a place that was like undaunted by any kind of challenge that you could imagine. They could build anything, and there was the incentive to do it. There was nobody to tell you not to try a new way of doing things. And what wound up happening is these new way of doing things that sometimes the people out east kind of laughed and sneered at wound up changing the standard way people did things. So this was an innovative hub. So now you've got the central part of the city, a smoking ruin, a large part of the north side, people homeless, people just rolled up their sleeves and got together and worked to build things as quickly as possible. One of the first buildings built in the downtown area, and the downtown was still smoking in rubble, is William Kerfoot, who was a real estate man, builds a wooden shack, which he called the first building in the burned district. And he had a sign on it, hand-painted, that said, all gone but wife, children, and energy. That's the Chicago spirit. And it wasn't long before, even into early 1872, and just months after the fire, new buildings were rising that replaced the old ones. Ironically, the size and the scale of those buildings in the, uh, wasn't that much different from the ones that were there before. But then there's an unusual phenomena. So there's all people who thought that they missed the boat by not getting in on Chicago in the early age of the 1840s, 1850s, when it was just beginning. You couldn't get a foothold. Now people came for the new opportunities after the fire. Chicago grew in a scale like it had never before. The downtown area, which was largely confined into a small geographic area defined by the, the features that gave Chicago growth, the lake on one side, the river on two sides, rail yards to the south, didn't give a lot of room for development of new office space. Many cities can grow sideways. Chicago couldn't do that. The downtown, after the fire, was built up with all these elegant 
four and five story buildings. They didn't have elevators for the most part. But Chicago was proud of these wonderful Second Empire stone fronts. Chicago was reborn. They would talk glowingly of these new buildings that arose in 1872, 1873. There was even a big depression, and they kept on building. But by the 1880s, these same buildings that Chicago was so proud of as a symbol of an all-new city were too small for all the businesses that wanted to be there. These same buildings were being knocked down within 15 years. 15-year-old buildings were being called old and obsolete. And these innovative Chicagoans raided the toolbox of the Industrial Revolution, goaded by the real estate people and the landowners to make buildings taller in taking things like metal framing, perfecting elevators into these amazing high-speed vehicles of vertical traffic, Chicago creates the skyscraper. The first skyscrapers arise in the mid-1880s on the site of buildings that only you know, 15 years before people were saying were so wonderful and modern. So the fire actually set in motion a series of chain reactions that made Chicago not only rebuilt, but even regenerate itself over and over again to make it the city that it is today. And indeed, the population in 1871 was 300,000. It jumped to 500,000 in 1880. And by 1890, it had catapulted past the 1 million mark, a triple increase from the Great Chicago Fire. That's, it's unimaginable today Tim, that something like this could be done. Nobody could believe the growth of the city, and the the old cities of the East shook their heads in disbelief. In fact, they would kind of look how to disparage the city as some kind of, and, and looked at things like its architecture as some kind of raw, crude kind of work. It was often a simplified architecture that was very direct in expression of materials. Well, this is the birth of modern architecture. It was happening here. The birth of a skyscraper happened here. It didn't happen out east where cities could grow sideways. And in population, Chicago not only grew in terms of people arriving in Chicago after the fire, but it began in the 1880s to aggressively annex adjoining towns, making that part of Chicago itself. So you have this behemoth of a city in terms of population and growing geographic size by 1890. And much to the surprise and perhaps anger of the old established cities of the East, when it was decided to have a world's exposition on the event of the 400th anniversary of Columbus's landing in the Americas, cities out East thought they had it buttoned up. Who got it? Chicago. And the world's Columbian exposition showed Chicago not only as a city that had suddenly grown up in a place of smokestacks and stockyards, but a city of culture and achievement that was there before the world. Indeed, the Chicago School of Architecture and so much more in art and music. I want to read one thing to you, a final point, and get your reaction. It is from British novelist and journalist Mary Ann Hardy, and she was an international writer who wrote about the recovery. 
We expected to find traces of ugliness and deformity everywhere, crippled buildings and lame, limping streets, running along forlorn, crooked conditions, waiting for a time to restore their vigor and build up their beauty anew. But Phoenix-like, the city has risen from the ashes, grander and statelier than ever. Talk about that. It's absolutely true that Chicago had reinvented itself, and it's unusual to have the center of a large metropolis suddenly built anew from scratch all at once. A typical downtown of an American city would consist of buildings of different scale and quality from a long timeline of their history. Here was something that not only is rising from the ashes all at once, new and modern, but the matter of pride. And they were trying to show the world that it was indestructible, that there was a quality to these buildings. And so you looked at it, it wasn't just someplace built out of necessity or makeshift quarters. These were elegant modern buildings and it occupied the whole of downtown and also of the areas that were in the path of the fire and you've been listening to tim samuelson and he's the cultural historian of the city of chicago and he's right about the quality of the buildings but all of that it all represented the quality of the people and the quality of those old midwestern values the story of the great chicago recovery here on our american story This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell a lot of stories about courage here on the show. And this next one, well, it was sent to us by one of the smartest and best people I know in Chicago, Noel Moore. One of those guys who should have his own radio show, but he's too busy working for a living and taking care of his family and his hometown. And we are going to produce this one up for him and do it the justice it deserves. And here is Hillsdale intern Monty Montgomery with the story of Jason Seaman, an ordinary man who did something truly extraordinary. It happened on a Friday, like any other. It's a 924 right now. I want to make you aware of some uh, breaking and developing news that we are working on here in the uh, 24-Hour News 8 newsroom. Stand by, active shooter, Noblesville Schools, active shooter, Noblesville Schools, stand by for further. Noblesville West, Noblesville West. Word of a shooting situation at Noblesville West Middle School. Noblesville West Middle School, if you know it, it's east of Morse Reservoir, uh, north of the Fox Prairie Golf area. Very limited information right now. We're going to learn a lot more in the minutes to come, but we do want to let you know what we know so far. All units. No 100, Noblesville Dispatch, active shooter, Noblesville West Middle School, 19,900, 8 Road. 
We do begin with breaking news for our viewers in the West. We want to show you these pictures. Aerial shot of a middle school in Noblesville, Indiana. What has become a familiar scene, students appear to be evacuating, running from their own school after reports that there has been a shooter there at Noblesville West Middle School. We don't have any word yet on injuries. Don't know how many people may have been hurt, but we do know, according to the fire department that has responded, that a shooter, uh, suspected shooter, is in custody. Battalion 307, I'm being reported that the, the shooter has been contained. You want everybody to stage or go in? We only have two patients. Two patients. One critical. One's going to be very stable. Okay. One critical, one stable. Two people are now recovering from gunshot wounds in Indiana after deputies say a middle school student started firing two handguns in the middle of class. Yeah, there's a teacher that's being called the hero this morning for his quick response during this earlier. I think what what is so really impressive here is that this is a school shooting where we're talking about no fatalities. And a big reason for that is this teacher. Meantime, police and school officials say those emergency preparations they made here paid off today. Noblesville is grateful tonight, grateful for one teacher. But who was that teacher? Well, according to those who know him, a man of extraordinary talents athletically, but one of the most humble and hardworking team players in the field and in the classroom. Raised in a family of hardworking, faithful, and community-minded parents, that teacher's seventh grade science teacher at Noblesville West Middle School, Jason Seaman. An ordinary man who did something extraordinary to save the lives of his students in his classroom. It was nine o'clock at Noblesville West Middle School, and in Jason Seaman's class, students had just started to take a science test. Nothing suggested anything out of the ordinary would soon happen, even when a student got up and requested permission to go use the restroom. That student that Jason Seaman had let out of class came back with two loaded handguns. The unthinkable was happening at Noblesville. It was like halfway through class. He pulled the gun out of his pocket and everyone just started screaming and trying to like, get behind stuff like the desks and tables. Jody Don is a former SWAT team member who responded to two active shootings in Colorado. If you see a gun like this open, what does that mean? He's teaching them how to recognize when the shooter is reloading his gun and teaching them defense tactics. Oh, there you go. Good, good. How and when to pounce. Run, hide, fight. These three tactics are commonly recommended to teachers by safety experts, such as the one you just heard, as the best way of surviving an active shooter situation. But for Jason Seaman, a former defensive end at Southern Illinois University, running away wasn't an option. 
A two-sport all-area performer in both basketball and football during high school, Jason Seaman was named News Gazette Athlete of the Year his senior year in 2007. Seaman had been trained to take on the hardest opponents on both the field and the court, but now he would have to do so in his own classroom. The stakes were much higher than a scoreboard. It was life or death, and losing was not an option. So Jason Seaman did what he needed to do. That's when, according to 13-year-old Ethan Stonebreaker, his teacher threw a basketball at the gunman to distract him, then running towards the bullet. We saw one girl fall to the ground, and our science teacher immediately ran at him, wadded the gun out of his hand, and tackled him to the ground. If it weren't for him, more of us would have been injured for sure. He did something that most people wouldn't dare to do, but it's very good that he did. Very good indeed. Jason Seaman, in an act of tremendous courage, managed to disarm and subdue the gunman using only his bare hands, taking three bullets in the process to the hip, abdomen, and forearm. But Jason's heroics did not stop there. As Jason Seaman laid on the ground with critically injured student Ella Whistler, he continued to hold the gunman yelling to his frightened students to call 911 and attempting to keep Ella calm in the situation. After a harrowing couple of minutes, the police and paramedics finally arrived and Jason was taken to the hospital for surgery. school held a fundraiser at this baseball game for Siemens medical costs along with 13-year-old Ella Whistler, also shot that day and critically injured. She remains in the hospital, though the school says she is improving. Jason Seaman was immediately hailed as a hero after the shooting. But what kind of man would run into a hail of bullets to save the lives of others? A man, according to his brother, that is familiar with struggle and adversity on the field. A father a great teammate and a hard worker who fought to get back on the field after tearing his ACL and having to endure multiple surgeries. Jason Seaman was just an everyday American from flyover country who stepped up to the situation at hand without thinking twice about it. And the ever-humble man himself, Jason Seaman continues to avoid the spotlight, so much so that we didn't even get a response from him or his family to interview but that's just the kind of person Jason Seaman is. But I'll let Jason's words speak for themselves. Here's Seaman at his only press conference. First off, uh, as a person who isn't looking for attention, uh, nor entirely comfortable with the situation I'm currently in, uh, I want to make it clear that uh, my actions on that day, uh, in my mind, were the only acceptable actions I could have done given the circumstances. I deeply care for my students and their well-being. Um, so that is why I did what I did that day. I can't say enough how proud of Ella I am and how we all should be. Her courage and strength at such a young age is nothing short of remarkable, and we should all uh, continue to keep her uh, in our minds as she continues to recover. The community poured their support out for Seaman as well. Listen to some of these remarks made by citizens of Noblesville and Americans at large. Because of this quick response today, 
that we think lives were saved. I can't believe um, what he did. Um, I can't wait to get the opportunity to shake his hand. At some point soon, uh, I want to shake that man's hand. He's an absolute hero. Um, he is actually the reason that uh, my daughter is actually here today. It wouldn't surprise me that Jason would step up to be the guy to do that. In the face of something like this, uh, you just hope that there's more teachers and, and uh, it doesn't even need to be a teacher, just more human beings like himself who, who are willing to put themselves on the line to, to help out the kids, you know, the future of America. And great job on that, Monty. And my goodness, a guy who didn't want the spotlight, the opposite of the Kardashians. They do nothing. They seek attention. He does something extraordinary. Doesn't want the cameras on him. That is the American character right there, by the way, folks. Ordinary folks doing extraordinary things. And by the way, Aristotle, at least the quote is attributed to him, said, courage is the first of human qualities because it is the quality which guarantees all others. And thanks to Monty, our Hillsdale intern. Well, they actually teach Aristotle and Shakespeare and the Constitution. What a crazy idea. And they push their kids hard at Hillsdale to learn and to grow. Hillsdale College, thank you for sharing your best and brightest with us. Go to hillsdale.edu to sign up for their free and terrific online courses. Have the family watch them. You can't get a better education anywhere. Jason Seaman's story, an American story here on Our American Stories.